You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Вот моя планета. Узм 247 в Тентуре. Галактика Бета в спирали. Вот машинка перемещения в пространстве. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Jennifer Handorf. Hello. Also with us is Mr. Dan Martin. Hello. Sci-Fi December continues with a look at the 1986 film from Georgie Daniela Kinzadza. Respect for trying. <laughs> I am trying my best, and I'm, I'm going to try character names. It's going to be fun. It's the story of two men who are transported to the planet Pluk, where they have to navigate the barren landscape and strange culture of the people that live there. We'll be unpacking their rituals and the anthropological implications of Pluk as we go along. I don't necessarily think that we'll be spoiling the film for people who haven't seen it yet, as I don't think there's too much to ruin in the film. Uh, it's more about the journey than the destination when it comes to Kinzatsa. So, Jennifer, had you seen this one before you agreed to be part of the episode? I had not, but having seen it uh, and having seen a lot of people who I think were influenced by it now, I think maybe I have seen aspects of it that now feel familiar. It's a bit, it's watching it's a bit like having deja vu if you've ever enjoyed Terry Gilliam or any of that sort of Czech mystical realism stuff that Terry Gilliam drew from. So no, this was my first time, though it feels as though I may have once seen it in a dream. How about you, Dan? I'd uh, seen bits, but not the whole thing. This was also a first time watch for me. I'd had this film for years on DVD and then eventually, even though I hadn't seen it, I upgraded to Blu-ray. Silly oh, me. Is there a Blu-ray? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can't remember where I got it from, but uh, maybe Mosfilm, perhaps. And then I know that there's a German company that's going to be putting it out very shortly, too, hopefully with English subtitles. Uh, this was everything that I hoped it would be. I had heard about it for years. I heard that there was this strange Soviet science fiction film where people spoke in a whole different language. Uh, that's not necessarily true, because eventually they do start speaking Russian and a little bit of Georgian. But, wow, it really plays with that stranger in a strange land trope, and I really dug it. Yeah, it's it's a lovely, lovely thing. When The, the very first shot, when it's uh, 
when it's tracking across the desert, we were trying to work out how much of that was real, how much of that was painted, whether it was miniatures. And throughout the film, there are like match cuts between these amazing. I think Jen, you looked it up, and it was a it's a real drained sea, isn't it? Yeah. Where they were filming, but there's match cuts between that and some really lovely miniature work as well. And often, you it's hard to tell which is which. It's a really gorgeous film. Well, and this and this film as well, it it, it takes purely from an imagined world. It's obviously. You know, if you're if you're a big sci-fi fan, it's obviously a humanoid planet where the where the aliens very much look like humans, and there's not not anything to distinguish them other than their codes of culture. The made-up vocabulary was something I really enjoyed because I'm a bit hard of hearing, and so I just sort of gently edged into not knowing what they were saying at any given point. <laughs> I enjoyed for a good part of the film imagining that they were just saying "cool." cool daddy-o that's cool every time they spoke about anything which gave it a bit of a positive spin for about 20 minutes which was great it's a weird journey i mean it's a weird journey for them it's a weird journey for the audience it's a weird little journey this film do you know what the linguistic uh, basis of coup is mike a lot of the uh, a lot of the words they use are based on georgian words or are sort of puns i guess references but i couldn't find anything that said what coup was the inspiration for coup was I'm not sure where it comes from, though I know that the film almost got into trouble because coup sounded like the initials of a Soviet or Georgian leader at one point. So, But then apparently they were ousted very quickly after uh, the film came out, the, the leader, not the film. And yeah, so there was all this controversy about that. And then also when they played at a film festival, and I want to say it was Portugal, but I'm not sure that that meant a coup meant a swear word. So they were getting into trouble at a film festival for a made up word in their eyes. That's amazing. Well, and and talking about getting in trouble, I was really surprised that a film with this direct a uh, critique of political codes of conduct and you know it's straight satire if nothing else and it's interesting to see that it was allowed to be made and supported at that time it's as well quite, it's quite uh obviously anti-capitalism and like sort of social hierarchies but the kgb also feature heavily in its in its police metaphor i think yeah. good like, lord yes <laughs> I, I guess like with a lot of these soviet era sci-fis you as as long as you weren't visibly ruder about the Soviet system than you were about the decadent West, then it was kind of okay. <laughs> well, and it's all taking place on a different planet. It's not like this is really talking about the Soviet Union, right? Um, yeah, well, they, exactly. They were still pretty touchy about and, all that stuff. <laughs> this, was, this was something else, and and my my nativism came forward at this point where I kept trying to make something of the fact that the, it was called Planet Pluke because I just kept re obviously you read it in the subtitle. And I kept reading it as puke, and I thought, oh well, maybe they're making. It's like, no, no. Obviously, it was written in in Russian originally, and there's no there's no connection to that whatsoever. But I couldn't figure out what what planet Pluke was related to either. Obviously, yeah, that one was a bit. A um, thing or something. Talking talking about the different words though, uh, and I uh, maybe someone's got it in front of them. But the name of the um the name of the police uh is apparently the Russian word for police backwards. Yeah. The name for the police class. So there's a lot of wordplay, which I feel. Probably someone with a with a, a much better grasp of Russian or Georgian than I could probably unravel quite a lot there. Yeah, the whole thing about the prison is based on a Georgian word for prison, apparently, which is a bathtub, and some bathtubs are filled with nails and others aren't, and then you get locked in there and shoved amongst all these other bathtubs. 
It feels a bit like something a kid would would threaten you with. Like, I'm going to put you in a bathtub full of nails. That's the, like it's it's very it's very childish in a lot of its ways. Have you seen the the remake, Mike? I have, yeah. I've uh, I've not seen it, but I've I've sort of skimmed through is that it the and, and watched the bits. Yeah, the animation. It's interesting to see what he's kept absolutely the same and what he's changed, uh, because things like oh, the prison is a bath feels like um, uh, like it might be a budgetary decision because you know those are cheap, and yet that is how it is drawn in the animation <laughs> as well. So he's stuck with that. <laughs> It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to compare and contrast once we go through the. Once yeah, we go I mean they're more overtly alien. The creatures on on Pluke. Yeah, it feels like this movie had just such a threadbare budget. But then you look at the special effects, and you're like, these are actually pretty good special effects. Like the actual flying machine that the two aliens that we meet. It's like that actually looks pretty decent. That looks better than some special effects I see now, especially on the Sci Fi Channel. I think lots of things look great when you compare them to the sci-fi channel. Even the ropiest of puppets is still a real thing that exists in the real world, and so it never feels unreal. Well, well, and it's charming enough that you you willingly buy into it. it exactly. Bad CGI, just you know. It has that. It has that crappy handmade charm that things like Monty Python and and like I said earlier, Terry Gilliam and a lot of the like like Schwenkmeyer and that kind of stuff really lent into. And it's got an aesthetic that really means something when you're in a dystopian world like this. Yeah, it's the sort of the the budgetary, the budgetary aesthetic of Gilliam and Jones, and then the tech aesthetic of Gilliam, very much borrow from this. I'd say I like it, it. It all very much reminds me of the of the behind the scenes at Brazil, like in between the walls of Brazil, kind yeah, of. Yeah, and particularly the futurescapes in Twelve Monkeys as well. If you look at how how much Gilliam sort of based himself on um Carl Zeman. He's obviously a fan of Eastern cinema, Eastern European cinema. So I I'd be very surprised if he hadn't seen this. Yeah, that see that was something else I started to wonder. Like how far did this actually get distributed at any given point and when was it actually released? Because it's it's the kind of thing um where you could imagine certain people watching it and completely ripping it off in in the late 80s early 90s. But equally, how often was this film actually being seen in someone's living room in, in 1989 in England or the States or, or wherever you have, you know? So we should talk a little bit more about the plot here. This begins on Earth, and it begins pretty normally. We've got our main character, Vladimir, who is a builder. He checks in with his wife in the morning. He's off his, on his way to work. And then he just ha- so happens to run into this young man, uh, Jedevan, who comes up and is like, hey, there's this guy over here without any shoes. We should probably help him. They go over and talk to this guy, and he is asking about what number they are in the galaxy because he's trying to get home. Obviously, we're thinking this is just a homeless dude who's maybe a little crazy until they hit a button on this little machine that he's got and then are instantly transported to this desert landscape. They're 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 just thrown into Arrakis, you know? So it's uh, or Tatooine if you prefer. Deserts and are cheap. <laughs> deserts are very cheap. And this whole movie has that great aesthetic and it's this whole thing where they then meet these two aliens, Bay and Wef, and Bay is this taller guy and Wef is this little uh, little dude and we learn through a little bit of time that they are of two different classes and that classism is just this major thing and it's basically how 
pluk the planet works is people of one class lording it over another class. You know, we talked last week or two weeks ago when we talked about creation of the humanoids about the whole star belly sneeches thing. And it's like, it's so arbitrary because there's a machine that they have where they point at you. And if it shows up green, then you are a potsack, the lower class. And if it shows up orange, then you're a, what is it? A, a chat? A ch- chat. Chat. And then to further confuse the issue, depending on what planet you're on, their ranking is the other way around. So d- depending on what, what group you ended up in with which it, it, it was a brilliant way of just nothing was consistent, which is a bit like Kafka-esque in that way that the second you, you think you know the rules, then suddenly there's another rule that twists it all around. When I was uh, a child, one of the very few videotapes we had in the house was an animated Asterix movie that wasn't based on one of the books called The Twelve Tasks of Asterix, although I think maybe they did a book later. And it cont- one of the tasks was to ha- you know get a document something or other signed over at the Roman Bureau of Works or something like that. And it turned into a bureaucratic nightmare of the highest order with them having to go from office to office because they can't have this one, this form until they've got this form and they have to request (laughs) that form with that form. And it always comes back to mind when I'm stuck in a sort of paperwork nightmare. And this felt very aligned with that in that they're t- they're so totally unaware of the rules and the younger guy is a little bit anarchic and keeps on wanting to just smash everything up and and he's a kleptomaniac, and he's a kleptomaniac. Well. the narrative turns to some extent on the fact that he's a he's an actual kleptomaniac <laughs> but they are yeah they're constantly the being caught out theory. about the fact that they're uh, they don't know the rules the opening in russia where it's the moment where the where our young our young lead walks up to our older lead and says you know, com- comrade brother, maybe rather than comrade. I'm, comrade. I'm, I, I thought I might be over rushing it up in my memory, but um, uh, this guy needs help. You know, the, he's not got any socks. I've already on. given him some- my socks. Yeah, and it's. I just love the idea that you could grab someone else in the street and say, "We need to help someone." We've just had a fairly significant election in the UK, and I think you know we could all do with with giving our socks to each other a bit in the UK right now. <laughs> but um, but I love okay, so that's one of the philosophies that it starts with is this idea of taking care of people who need to be taken care of, and then secondly, our ostensibly our time travelers slash. Um, mentally ill, displaced human is saying, no, 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 just tell me the coordinates of your planet. And they've got no idea what he's talking about. And they assume he's insane because they don't understand the rules of what he's talking about. Now, later, everyone's going to look at them like they're insane. I love the bit where they're trying to find out what the coordinates for their yeah, planet like, okay, actually no, no, is. That's fine. Just tell us the specific gravity at the center <laughs> of your planet. And they're like, um, I don't know that. And I love, I love that they're being looked at. Like, how do you, how do you not? Okay, fine. Just tell us the, the circumference of your planet. <laughs> and it's like, it's all this kind of stuff that you can imagine in a, in an interplanetary kind of world being really basic knowledge, like your street number or your postcode yeah. or something like that and and so that swap of being in a different culture and having something be totally normal versus something being totally alien and then and then the third thing i really love about it is the fact that our our older hero just grabs the box and pushes the button and is suddenly in the desert which is so very much the editing style of this film five minutes in as well it's so it's just to abandon a vignette and go into a completely different chunk of story once the point of that vignette was resolved (laughs) it's absolutely spectacular yeah, it just, it moves very quickly and they 
even though this movie is a little bit over two hours, I can't think of any place in this movie that drags. No, it's it's really it's quite nippy for something of that length. I was I, I tell you I didn't expect it to be in two parts. <laughs> so the uh, the little uh, the the little dictionary about halfway through was quite nice. I loved that, and it was a bit meta, but it was also a bit like a traveler's guide to to plunk. Like it was um it was it was sort of it felt like I was a tourist, and and they call them tourist and tour guide for a little bit. The characters, well, they 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 sort of are operating under the the falsehood that they would just before they realize they're on another planet they think they're still in russia they're just further away like what's the what's the closest desert we must be there (laughs) so they say oh you know we're just lost our tour guide has wandered off right take us to the next big city and we'll be there Exactly, but I love I love the way that um, that sort of plunk for dummies dictionary comes up in the middle, as though to include us in this gag. Is look, we know you Earthlings don't understand, so look, we're just going to spell it out for you. So going forward, you've got this information. <laughs> By that time, I feel like I had figured out a lot of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't like unlocking the key for the second half of the no, film. It wasn't a great reveal. It was more like a more like revision, more just saying, okay, if you haven't gotten it yet, this is what's going Some on. Some of the specific terms for the penal system hadn't been explained up until that point, so they were quite useful. I like that the word for money was chattel. That's quite that's chattel, quite direct yeah, to English, nice. isn't it? That's sort of a and but then equally, I love there's a bit where they're counting out their money and the older chap hasn't figured it out. And, and he's just handing these seemingly random, probably randomly shaped pieces of metal, uh, sort of trapezoidal shards of metal to the younger guy going, how much is this? That's 50. And how much is this? That's 100. And it sort of just reminds me of like the first day of any trip I've taken to a foreign country where you're sort of going through your change going, is that is that five cents or five dollars? I don't know what that is. Well, the other thing is that it's pretty clear that the hierarchy is almost entirely based on wealth, which is obviously a... Um, a direct- and trouser colour. Well, the, but the trouser colour is more of a uniform. You're not born with the trousers. <laughs> Like it's super anti-capitalist in that it's super like pro-Russian system communism, yay, because it's lambasting this society for being having its class based entirely on how much money people have. So we've got the chaps with the bells in their nose, the patsacks, who who on plunk are the are the lowest citizen. Then above that, we've got the chaps with no bells on their nose, the Chatelanians, the Chatelanians, cool. And then above who that, who have a lot of chattel. Who have a lot of chattel, exactly. Who have the, the, the moolah, as it were, the Melunians. No. Um, so, and then above that is the Echilipsa, the, the police, but backwards, effectively. The ones with the lights on their heads spinning around. Are they, is that a class or is that a job? I feel like, I feel like it's a job that comes with a ranking, which I suppose. You know. Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose, like the like the military police, and then and then above that, you've got the the big guy, Mister. Well, no, you've got sort of hippies between them. The hippies, the the, the people on the other planet, because they're the count, they're the council or the something or other for that for for Blue. Oh, the the ones we meet towards the very yeah. end. Yeah, we'll yeah, come yeah. back to them. I guess. I didn't think they were part of the same ranking. Yeah, Did you yeah, get that, Mike? Have, yeah, they have to go there to talk to them because they stay off world, but they're in charge of a bunch of stuff. And they just turn everyone to cactuses. And when they get there, they're like, yeah, no, we're not interacting with you. Go away. (laughs) Please put on a mask. You're spoiling our lovely air. I I can imagine for someone who's not seen the film, this all sounds like we're talking nonsense. 
and yet we understand each other completely because in the context of the film, all of these things are related. Yeah. Whereas in actual outside of this world, it does seem like complete and total gibberish. Yeah, I don't know where Mr. PZH stands compared to, say, a dwarf wearing yellow pants. I think he's above a dwarf, both literally and, and socially, above a dwarf wearing, wearing yellow pants. And then they talk about crimson pants as well, but I never saw anybody with crimson pants. The guy who turns up and they all start kowtowing really hard to, who has a like a gun that can cut a pipe in half from a distance, he was oh, wearing yeah. crimson pants. Ooh. Oh, very good. <laughs> crimson pants, gun cutter. So again, you know, as we sort of meander through the rules of this world, that is kind of what the narrative does, isn't it? Like every little interaction reveals another version of how one is meant to interact. I find the 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 I mean this this is a this is a British tradition busking. I find the the way that the buskers are treated, the sort of traveling musicians who are playing for money is a is a really interesting commentary. The thing Moscow like Russia like New York like all these cities has a lot of street performers in it and I am sure that the people who wrote this film had those street performers in mind when they were writing about the the musicians who have to stand in a cage and then get money thrown at them at the end. Yeah. Because that's their only way forward. I mean, the, after a little while we learn that they need to have this gravistakapa or whatever this this thing that will help the ship run and they're like okay well we need money to buy one of these things so their only option is to busk and then yeah we find out that they can't they can't busk outside of a cage so they need they're to allowed to yeah. and in certain places they can't even busk in a cage if they're not kneeling down because that area is for kneeling down yeah <laughs> But they're not allowed to be in a cage. They have to be outside a cage and kneeling down. I never worked out what those two spherical metal shapes were that they would put down either side of the cage. Little razzle dazzle. This is a little <laughs> bit of extra. Like footlights. But it's interesting that they're using a violin that one of them was trying to return to a sort of philharmonic performer. So this is something from their world that represents like high class and respected art. And now they're like screeching out these oh. mistunes in the desert yeah. it does it does need to be said that their notion of of musical entertainment is far lacking it's um, <laughs> but, and, and again you, it's, you don't like the classy woman farting with a spring in her mouth oh there was a there was a lot yeah there was a lot of things that made me want to take a bath after the first half of this movie um but <laughs> um there was a and, and yeah there's some kind of game so this is it. It's almost like you've been on a holiday and you're explaining to people different things that happened on your holiday. There's a game where they put a spring in their mouth and whoever can spit the spring the farthest wins. And it's um, do you remember this? It's where, oh, yeah, the, where yeah, they're yeah. going for the first match. And then as we go, I think that's separate to the spring. The spring is her musical instrument. Oh, I know, but that's a different one. But then later when we go to uh, meet that group of people who they first perform for, there's a load of people doing that weird spitting yeah, the thing out of their things. mouth game. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of spitting in this because not only is that, but then the the, uh, the the little guy will spit on the big guy when he's in his cage quite a bit. Yes. There's a lot of that going on. And then a lot of sort of gentle nose tickling as well. Like the bell, the bell gets sort of like, like sort of silly slapped a lot of the like jazz fingers sort of on the bell a lot which I, is funny i found that the tall guy when he was wearing his bell looked 
uncomfortably like John Cleese from time to time. That's true. <laughs> oh, wow. Which I found quite distracting. A cross between John Cleese and a British actor called Mark Heap, who was in Spaced. Have we specifically let the audience know where the bells are hanging from? Because I feel like if we haven't been clear about that, people could be getting the wrong idea at the minute. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, if you don't, if you're not allowed yellow or red trousers, pants, uh, you have to wear a, like a septum bell. On your nose, like a like a like a musical mule. Hit well, like for mules, or like they do, them or a bull, yeah, exactly, like a bull bell. There you go, thank you. Do um, bells don't. Yeah, yeah. So you know when the bull. They usually do a ring. Yeah, yeah. So ring through the nose and the bell around the neck. I think you're getting cow. They don't hang a cow. I mean, bell it's from just a more efficient. Communism, in it. And it's easier to see. You can see a patsack at fifty paces if they have their bell. In. Exactly. Well, presumably, if you if it, uh, if if you could see a patsack, they could see you. So they would be squatting. In recognition of their you. noses and waving their arms. Yes, this whole genuflection thing is just amazing. And again, it's just, we're sort of being exposed to this culture and told, you know, you've got to blend in. It's great. This movie reminded me a lot of Hard to Be a God, with this whole idea of someone coming from Earth, though it's a more advanced Earth, and then coming to a very uh, middle-aged type, uh, like Dark Ages type place, except our our characters that are coming here aren't nearly as advanced as, say, the scientists in Hard to Be a God. They just are thrown into this world, which has this kind of Dark Ages type appearance to it, and also I love that. Uh, speaking of uh, where we're at politically in today's world, that Pluke used to be quite a different planet, but they used all of the water for fuel. So now they have no more water left on this planet, and it becomes this precious commodity. And they have to actually convert now fuel back to water before they can even have a drink. It's this endless process of converting fuel to water and water to fuel, and the the absolute ludicrous of it, ludicrous of it, of it that the travelers instantly recognize, but the citizens are completely baffled by them saying, "What do you mean? You change it into one and then into the other and then back into the other, and you don't see how that's a waste." Well, they've got the for some reason sulfur is very important to them because well, obviously you've rocket got all the, ma- the matches. Fueling, I think, yeah. Well, but then they've got this sort of like infinite fire source that they give him to light his cigarettes in. Ex- in exchange for the matches, because the matches are so precious. And it's only when they run out of matches that they have to resort to busking to, to get their power cell. But is that so is that power cell charged with water somehow? Is that is that what we're meant to I know? I like the fake science of the thing that spins around with fire shooting out of it. I it's never explained how their spaceship works. It just works. And that's okay. And I like that about this particular brand of science fiction where we're not expected to be gifted any great concept of physics or anything like this. It basically works on a round slide rule and a button. (laughs) But, but so I've not actually seen the film you're making a comparison to Mike, but I think, I think Dan has. Hard to be a God. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. So what do you reckon? Yeah. I mean, it's, the thing is hard to be a God centers around the idea that, uh, earth scientists have found a, um, a planet that is exactly the same as Earth, but X years behind us. So they send an expedition there to examine what Earth would have been like at that period, because the space situation is such that it's a perfect facsimile of Earth in the past. And then these guys there with their advanced knowledge are essentially gods because they know so much more than the locals, but immediately sort of, are they stuck? It's a while since I've seen it. Do they get stuck there and they can't get back or are they just like dicking around? I think they're dicking around. Yeah. 
they've got some like more modern instruments that they've taken with them. So there's an interesting uh, co- correlation there as well because they've got an oboe, haven't they? Uh, like a modern a clarinet or an oboe with them in Hard to Be a God. But they're basically they're basically like kind of like a violin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're, they're, they're basically like land barons by the time they get there because they have this information and therefore they're so much in advance of everyone else. But they can't reveal themselves as aliens and they can't reveal themselves as uh, a sort of essentially future people because it would blow these... Backwards. Th- yeah, these, back, these backwards... Little space people's minds. Yeah, blow their minds. The Prime Directive is not a matter of degrees. It is an absolute. Whereas with Kinzadzar, they are actually, like, they've got interplanetary travel and they can teleport and they can send people back in time like so they're actually very advanced but it's they've just got no they've, food or resources it's, well that's or matches yeah. or matches well but it's because they've mismanaged society so badly that they have sort of destroyed themselves they've invested all of their uh powers into technology and not enough into charisma or healing basically <laughs> the, the ones in charge of buggered off to that lovely lush planet with its orangeries and uh and and super clean uh air that you're only allowed to breathe if you're nice if you, if you, if you look clean um and they've left the the lower rungs of society on this horrible desert planet presumably working for the people on the other planet although that's never made clear yeah, because it's once we do see their workforces, it is this giant, faceless. It reminds me of um, when you see videos of of like Asian prison camps that are doing exercise in the morning, and they're all like massive numbers of people all moving in the same uniform, same really just desperately don't want to be there, desperately want to be anywhere else, but but going through the motions of what they're told to do, kind of a thing. They're sort of using these like. They look like big dynamite plungers, the old widowmakers that they used to use to set off TNT. Or the rail, the rail war. Uh, what were those things on the railroad that they used? Yeah, to like the of, seesaw. Like, travel down the railroad. Yeah, the, the manual rail car. It's a seesaw. Yeah, so they're 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 powering something. They're operating something, but it's very hard to know what. Presumably, they are replacing the fuel that has to be turned back into water. Or they are blowing up that last breath of Mr. PCH, even though he's still alive. I don't understand that. Yeah, that was a, that was a bit confusing. Was was he the one in the bathtub at the uh, in the hot tub? I think so. And so when we finally get revealed to him, he feels like an idiot. It feels like he's probably got like a seventy IQ and just oh, stays Prince in the Andrew. bathtub all day. He's in the bathtub with his boyfriend and, and then, he's ringing his nose bell. But, but who is a um, nose beller? A pat sack. He's in the bathtub with a pat sack, and one of the last things that our heroes do is swap the bell across from the pat sack to the the leader guy, and he's just like, "Yeah, all right." It's very much one of those ideas where the machine of government is actually disconnected from the individuals, where he himself is not. There is no great wizard behind the curtain. There is just the system and the way people interpret the system in the moment. Well, it's become a runaway thing in and of itself. It doesn't need to be steered. It's not being steered. Fascism? Leaderless fascism? Is that too far? Because they're, they're, they're all, they really want to follow, like, they're, no, you know what it is? They're so fearful of punishment that they will follow the rules to a fault unless they're confident they won't be caught. Because things like stealing... Well, they, everybody next stuff in this movie, and they make a big thing about the fact that everyone is lying all the time. Don't leave your purse on the back of your chair, is what I'm saying. <laughs> everybody next stuff in this movie. <laughs> yeah, except- the traveler actually, ret- when they meet him again, he returns their socks, so he's an honourable chap. Uh, and that's when they they ro- they rob him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also 
interesting that the is it just the police or does everybody have telepathy? Oh no, they, they everyone does because when they're playing chess against the Patak Patsak, they uh, say, "Oh, you were thinking the you were cheating yeah. because you were thinking things you didn't do." Yeah, they, they he's never played chess before, but he's able to beat our heroes because he can read their minds, so he knows what moves they're going to do. And so the next time they they do a big bet, and he deliberately thinks about moves he's not going to do to like spoil the make it impossible for the other guy to cheat, and he thinks that that in and of itself is cheating. So yeah, they can all they can all read minds. See, again, it's not really covered. I love that very like turning it on its head, where the idea is that well, we can all read minds. So if you can stop me reading your mind, then you're cheating. Yeah. As opposed to then, and it's it reminds me of um like as as a as a film producer, different cultures do business in different ways, and uh, I've been in parts of the the world where it's just assumed that you're going to be lying to each other. And it becomes this very weird negotiation where if if you're not in on it, everyone's lying to you and they assume you're lying to them when you're telling the truth. And obviously quite quickly it goes very badly wrong yeah. and everybody's upset. It's almost like the election we've just had where it turns <laughs> out that not being willing to tell endless lies is a huge detriment to a campaign. And so, and then, but if you have everyone in negotiation is aware that everyone is telling lies, then it's fair. It's this bonkers system of it being unfair to everyone in the same way, uh, rather than being fair to everyone in the same way. And it's very hard to fix that kind of thing, because anyone who isn't lying all the time is at a massive disadvantage, because everyone just assumes they're lying anyway. But it's fine, because he is, in fact, the horrible kleptomaniac who, for no reason that is ever explained, consistently steals things wherever they're going. Yeah, he steals a gem out of the spaceship that they're says, in. He says, I didn't think it was working. important. Is I thought right? it was just a piece of glass. <laughs> like a child. Oh, did you need that? I didn't know. My bad. Well, and then they're also totally into fucking each other over. And the the aliens who we think are maybe becoming friends with our two main characters, they just fuck them over consistently. And then at the end, when they are locked in... Uh, a bathtub and our heroes are like well no we have to save them that's the right thing to do it becomes so foreign to them that how why are you doing this why are you trying to save us and they want to stay in that bathtub and that's that's kind of what i mean about the like cultural balance and cultural equity in that sense is that if if the cultural rule is that we both know that one of us is is at any moment going to fuck the other one over then it's okay you don't feel cheated because it's expected but they get they are the the two locals are so thrown off guard by the fact that these two guys are helping them, and then not ten minutes later they fuck them over again. <laughs> I, I can't I can't remember what it's from, but I remember maybe it's a sketch, maybe it's a movie, but I remember a conversation between two characters in something where one of them is trying to explain something, and the other one keeps on going, "Okay, all right, and what's the angle?" Like, <laughs> no, there's there's no angle. We're just going to do this. All right, I, I get it. What's the con? <laughs> like, no, no, there's no there's no con. Like, we're, we're just oh, going to be nice. A double bluff. I get it. No, no, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> so as soon as these guys are sort of super honourable, they are viewed with suspicion because that's not something that happens on this planet. Because they give over, they, they give up two chances to go home because it would mean abandoning these guys. And then they end up having to use time travel to do the end, let's say, heist, the breakout a second time, which I was just like, whoa, what, what the hell's going on here? Well, they, they're they told they can go back to Earth, but those guys will stay in the prison cell, or they can go back to the 
back to the time they made a specific decision, which would mean that they could then bust the guys out, but they wouldn't get to go back to Earth. This is where it does its sort of one-hour TV, wrapping it up really quickly to make everything a little tidy, because they go back in time before the original time traveler came to where they are. So they rescue their friends before that happened so that when he gets there, they can all go back. Except immediately their two friends want to nick his bunny off his, they're like, just, uh, what kind of, what kind of system you got there? You want to, want to let me hold it for a minute? Want to let me hold your, uh, space and time travel device button for a minute? I promise I won't run away with it. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, bye-bye. Yeah, and he just immediately disappears. And again, that brings us back to this delightful smash edit of this, of this film when, once certain things are done, you do not come back from them. Once the matches are gone, they don't come back. It's it's gone. There's nothing to be done. And you've just got to move on from it. This absolute absolute response to loss or change or whatever you want. I'm a big fan of how the natives on the planet, their greed is only limited by their imagination. When they discover that matches are a plentiful resource on Earth, initially they're like, I mean, okay, but we couldn't do it for less than seven, seven bucks. <laughs> yeah. And then... Um, and then by the end of the movie, they're like, it's 11,023 boxes you need, you owe us now. And it's like- <laughs> At first, they're fascinated by the idea that w- that he's got one match, one match, my God, one match. And then they watch him light a cigarette with it, and they just about plots. And it just, as Dan says, it just, this idea of wealth just escalating from there, where initially at the beginning of the film, the idea of owning one match would be more wealth than they could ever imagine. And then by the end of the film, 20,000 boxes of matches plus 23, don't forget the additional 23, we need every match we can get. I mean, obviously from the communist angle, it's a, it's a, a, a view of capitalism that is as unfavorable as it should be, but. The communist side of it is they are literally saying that you have to lie in a capitalist society. Like when, when, when things are capitalist, truth is gone out the window because there's no room for truth in a capitalist world. Things that you would think are really easy to come by are very difficult to come by in the Soviet Union at this time. I mean, this was the age of, oh, are you going to Russia? Well, take a whole suitcase full of jeans because they'll pay you thousands of dollars for a pair of jeans. I was like, what? <laughs> Absolutely. And it was in, in fact, um, it wasn't so close to this, but 10 years later, I actually, I, I, as a, as a young teenager, uh, spent about three months in Russia when my dad was working there. And it, <clears throat> even then, it was absolutely just such a different world to look at. And as you say, so much closer to this bordering, don't look at what, don't put your stuff down because it will be gone because you shouldn't have put it down. And we uh, watched, recently watched 123, the Billy Wilder picture mm. set on the Berlin Divide. Uh, and it's about uh, someone trying to introduce Coca Cola to communist Germany at the time and they're using coca-cola as a bribe as a currency because these things aren't available so things that are so plentiful in our world were were uh, much more scarce over there well and and again this becomes like terrifyingly relevant i think i think america's probably going to be shin deep in in hershey bars and and coca-cola for as long as it wants but over here in the uk <laughs> we'll kind of see what starts happening over the next no, couple no, no, of no, years no, no. We'll, we'll have free access to all the lovely american goods we just have to give them our healthcare system we don't want your communist healthcare system. Uh, I wouldn't take it if it was served on a silver platter. The idea that I have to pay for someone else's healthcare, forget it. I don't want that at all. <laughs> Why should I help the people around me? Thank you very much. I'll pay thousands of times more for my own healthcare than nothing for my own healthcare and a fraction of that. 
I'm sorry, do they have bells in their noses? Because if they don't have bells in their noses, I'm not paying for their healthcare. How can you run a society when you don't know who to squat at? Exactly. <laughs> what colour what color trousers do they have there? Because we could have one kind of healthcare for yellow trousers and one kind of healthcare for red trousers. And that does sound fair. Yeah, no, red trousers means the healthcare isn't going well. Now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars. But the plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon Mars. No stars on their bellies. No stars upon Mars. Now those stars weren't so big. They were really quite small. You would think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star-bellied Sneetches would brag. We're the best kind of Sneetch on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. They'd have nothing to do with a plain belly sort. The police are really a class unto themselves and that they can read minds and they're just like, don't think about the matches whenever the police yeah. show up. <laughs> because the police just steal whatever they want and they get away with whatever they want. Well, exactly. And there's this there's this fantastic encounter towards the end when they've just about made enough money to get whatever next part of their plan is going to is going to move forward. And they they get uh, uh, isolated by this cop. And they put their hands up and squat, and he just walks up behind them, puts his hand in their pockets, takes out all their money, and walks yeah. around without even so much as a how do you do, as it were. He just sort of one fluid motion takes all of their money out of their pockets and then starts the conversation. And it's it's absolutely spectacular. The again, the the parallel to now and and certain communities where this is the issue that people are really living with. Well, and the rather astonishing lack of ironic self-awareness as to quite how the government was behaving in Russia at the time as well. Well, this is, again, it goes back to the idea of, of how self, you know, how self-aware were the filmmakers when they were putting this out? Was this propaganda purely to say that the West and capitalism was wrong? Or is there an element of saying, oh, you know, we're not exactly right either, guys? Well, you've you've got, there's a there's your, your big dividing line in Soviet cinema, isn't there? You've got pre-Tarkovsky and post-Tarkovsky Soviet cinema, and all the stuff before was all like space race, and we're the best, and our science is better than the West, and, uh, you know, the, the West is terrible. We watched um, uh, Icarus XB1 the other day, and those moments when they come across an, an American spaceship and everyone is dead and they've died from using a, a like a, a weapon gas. Because America's spaceships well, They don't say America, stupid. but it's got English, English writing on the walls. <laughs> and obviously that's because they're less advanced than the Soviets. Because of the upside, up, upside down writing pens and, and they just use pencils and all that jazz. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've seen that meme. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's unusual and, um, Obviously, I mean, I've not lived in the States for a while, for about about 11 years now. For you, coming from the States, does it seem like an indictment more of communism, capitalism? Where do you think it falls? I hate to be wishy-washy, but it feels like it's just a critique of any sort of system. And I don't necessarily see... Yeah, there's a lot of running after chattel, but I still even see that when it comes to the Soviets and just the way that they want to do it. I mean, it just this whole idea of wealth and status and who lords it over who and the corruption of the police and the unknowingness, the idiocracy of the, the higher ups. 
it just yeah it feels like it is critiquing every system all at once but i think as a as like as a slightly state controlled media although not as bad then as as maybe back in the sort of 40s and 50s but the argument there would be you know stupid leaders and corruption and money like the decadent west <laughs> nothing like russia so like even if that wasn't quite what the filmmakers were doing i think it was definitely like explained at least at some point to someone as definitely being allegorical oracle about the uh, the pitfalls of capitalism on our little characters adventures the locals and the and the travelers finally before our travelers are presented with their with their ultimate choice they go to the home planet of one of our of our locals and it's absolutely decimated the oxygen isn't breathable and this is that bit of the film is i think the piece of the film that is most like that's the that's the sort of that's the really juicy bit of it. They land on this planet that's absolutely decimated, and the the locals make this offer to our travelers, which is that look, um, we can't actually get to Earth in this thing because we can only get as far as this other planet, and we'll be killed on this other planet, so we can't take you any further. Um, but what we could do is we could all do the singing thing, buy this planet for cheap, buy some oxygen after that. And then you guys have half the planet, and we have half the planet, and that'll be pretty nice. And it's the most charming offer you've ever seen. And the traveler's response is that they he goes outside and tries to kill himself in the toxic atmosphere of the planet, rather than committing himself to a lifetime with these other two guys. <laughs> and it's just as far as, and as I say, the film sort of moves through these vignettes, but it's this... Co- Oh my god, absolutely poignant. And he sat there in the dust of the dying planet, slowly asphyxiating on its toxic atmosphere with these two guys saying, Come on, come on, it won't be so bad. What was in in the eighties, what was Russia's feeling about like environmentalism and that kind of stuff? Like was that was that a, a topic that was being explored a lot over there? I mean no, I it was, can't it was imagine it was. I mean, I'm thinking about nuclear and power and that was, kind of stuff. But. Yeah, obviously Japan was quite into into environmentalism in that era. Well, you know, this was the same year as the Chernobyl disaster. Yeah, and it's and it's so I think this is just before they got really wary of all the kind of modern technology and this kind of thing. Because um, that it, most of the stuff you get afterwards is is more in response to we tried that and it didn't work rather than this era where it's a bit more hopeful. But I do love that their utopia is still this alpha planet, which is covered in beautiful fauna and flora. Yeah, like pretty pretty people in see-through dresses and white dogs. Like a sexy Star, Star Trek planet. Have you guys ever seen American Astronaut? No. I have, what no. is that? I highly recommend it. It's a it's a musical comedy adventure film from Corey Maccabee, and there were parts of it that reminded me of this as far as uh, when they're on that smaller planet, the Patsak planet, and the, there's a really awkward thing where the guy kind of jumps up and the film switches to slow-mo to say, <laughs> so like, this is low... Yeah, this is low gravity. They do some low-gravity stuff in American Astronaut where there's a guy going across, uh, basically it's a big sound stage filled with sand and it's shot just slightly slower so it does look like that's no gravity and towards the end of that the 
they end up going to Venus, which is this utopian world and all of these beautiful women and they're all in white diaphanous dresses. So, and the, the science fiction in that is really, really low budget. Like when they are traveling from a planet to another planet, it's done in a series of still images and the spaceships almost look like trains. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, it's great. And this is, the, what era was that from? When is that from? That was early 2000s. Yeah, okay, so quite modern. Because um, the other thing I was going to say, and this is this is going back to the 60s, is that it reminded me a bit of Barbarella in in its like absolutely ludicrous cultural observation, like sort of almost zo- zoological adventure through another society's culture. Um, because in again and again in the vignettes, that kind of a way, just going from location to location, spaceship to spaceship with not much care on how you get in between, as you say, these sort of stilted images. Because <laughs> for, for this one, in Kinzadza, we are, I love it, we are inside the spaceship whenever they're traveling, because there's no windows on the spaceship. So we're with our heroes. And in fact, there's one point where they're like, oh no, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Oh, we've landed. Oh, okay. Did we take off? Is that happened? Okay. Yeah, there's no like shaking the camera or anything to even say like you are now in motion. Exactly. And there's no sort of shots of them looking out the window with all of the spectacular stars and views of planet Earth. And you know what? Part of that, I don't know how much Russia had seen Russia uh, mass culture had seen of those photographs of the Earth from from space at that point. I mean, like, Russia had been to space. <laughs> yeah, but did they I mean, I don't know if they took pictures while they were not joking, but like no, had they been to space? Oh, or? they forgot the camera at home. Exactly. They're like, yeah, look they're- guys, we don't have any room for it. Just take some drawings while okay, you're there. Okay, guys, we've got a bit of a problem. The dog is not taking photographs. <laughs> 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 but it's I mean, you know what I mean? In in um in American culture, the sort of NASA of it all is a huge piece of propaganda that says, "Look how good we're doing! Look at space! Look at all this!" So it was interesting to see that absent from a film that is ostensibly about space travel. Well, but again, it's because it comes like everything up until uh, sort of Solaris and like Tarkovsky's Depression era Russian sci-fi, Soviet sci-fi was like space race voyage to the stars. But you know they were you know. Raw, we're the best. Space is amazing. So is this then we're more response going, you've seen all the space stuff, we're just going to be in the ship? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that like there is absolutely no way that Russia wasn't like pumping, we beat America to space into every home in Russia. They were very proud of that. I wonder if that's how this got financed, because it is quite a politically charged film. And obviously a lot of films were completely financed by the government at this time over there. So there, there wouldn't have been a lot of money in it if it wasn't government approved. I wonder if that is an element of it. The idea that Russians have this, um, this advanced technology because they are Russian and that the space traveler went to Russia because it is Russia. If that was a part of the, of the message of the film as well. I mean, we're, while we are, we as humans are depicted as significantly in advance of this culture. Um, sort of morally and societally, there's no, there's no way you can, you could say that even, you know, post Gagarin, we couldn't claim to be as advanced technologically or as, you know, with space travel as the aliens were. The fact that they're able to teleport to our world and they have these maps of entire solar systems and stars and all that kind of stuff, things that we didn't have by that point. No, fair enough. I love those maps, though. I mean, so much of the design of this film is just gorgeous and it's that, 
I don't want to use the S word. I don't want to say steampunk, but it's that like we talk about the used universe. This is like used, thrown away, and reclaimed universe. Shabby chic sci-fi, exactly. Very <laughs> um, rust, rusty sci-fi. Um, but it, it is. I mean, you could say what it's. It's even films like Waterworld live in this kind of Mad Max kind of a world, and. I think when you consider, you know, Russia home of the hammer and sickle, um, that obviously they're going to focus on an industrialized era. Did steampunk involve in the nineties? Was it a response to things or did it exist before that? Because obviously it takes place in sort of Victorian and Elizabethan Eshas. But where did, I mean, you know, it feels like this is kind of stuff that fed into that mythology rather than being a part of it. I'm imagining steampunk was invented by someone who found a warehouse full of top hats and cogs. Exactly. Useless cogs that don't go anywhere. Lots of goggles. Exactly. Oh, some welding goggles and top hats. What can I do with these? But yeah, no, it, it's, it really does. The, the internal mechanism of their spaceship is fantastic. It's basically the inside of a bullet. Like, it's sort of a weird conical shape. And then at one point, when our younger traveler goes to uh, uh, goes to the loo, they remind him that anyone who goes to the loo has to put their money on the shelf beforehand so they don't try to steal their own money. And then he goes out the door, we wait a few minutes, and the older traveler says, uh, is he still, you know, he's not come out of the loo yet. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's not the loo. That's just a trap door to the outside of the, of it's the an spaceship. It's an escape pod. They've ejected him in an escape pod. We ejected him ages ago. Although that escape pod does sort of have a toilet in it. It's, you know, column A, column B. One man's escape pod is another man's toilet. Um, but it's it's this spectacular kind of Escher-esque internal mechanism where you don't really know what anything does or where it goes, or if up is down or left is right, but but all of the pieces make sense and they're not explained. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's different to things like Mad Max and which came before and Waterworld, which came afterwards, because those are very much about making new technology out of the remnants of a bygone civilization. Whereas these seem to be machines that were built for purpose. Oh, They're still got, being used as they were. At- I got a lot of bygone in the desert. Like the desert feels oh, like we're, we're definitely dystopian like you know the the absence of water and all that kind of stuff it's a desolate wonder but is in the 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 um remnants the sort of archaeological archaeological sites of like things that look like they've been long buried in the sand and and the and the ferris wheel and that kind of stuff that's obviously that's obviously all found yeah no i i i completely see what you're saying what i'm saying is that the spaceship is a spaceship and it's being used as it was Built intended, yeah, rather than like the vehicles in the second Mad Max film, where they're cobbled together out of bits of other things, and they've sort of knocked this stuff together from the detritus of a bygone civilization. Whereas the the old stuff in this, the the stuff from before, is at most being used as shelter, and often is just lying around like they're not. No one's using the Ferris wheel. They, they just happen to be like occasionally they're hiding in a. a, a a bit of a shack or like the the end of a beached boat i still think they harvest stuff but but uh, yeah, a bit of it's, not, it's not a hill i want to die on necessarily but it's there's a small variation between the men and the women in this movie and and there is there is a very characterful split down the middle we don't have any female protagonists there's only people we meet on the way there's obviously the wife of our of our older traveler um, but then we meet a woman they try to seduce who gets one over on them, Trixie Lady, uh, runs off and leaves them behind. And then later when we do a flash forward, they're sort of jumping around, entertaining some people. 
and there's a woman who does a who does a funny walk as she walks back up to the Ferris wheel, a sort of sexy, yeah. funny skip walk, which I quite enjoyed. And then there is the exceptionally well endowed uh, guard in the tunnel of the prison. <laughs> yes. Um, who or or short squat uh, local is quite enamored with, um, and she does that same fantastic walk jump away. Like all, all the, the women, women do all the women this women sort of walk, walk like jump yeah, in the... the film, and it's it's a very random. It's walk. it's such a cool weird thing to do to to not point it out, but just have all of the women do like a one two three skip, one two three skip as they walk, um, just to separate it out in that way. It's a very thoroughly considered world that they've built, even if none of it makes any sense. Giorgio Daniela made another film that I really want to see after seeing this one called 33, which is um, the same guy who plays the squat uh, Plukian. He he plays this guy who has 33 teeth and is being hailed as a hero because everyone else has 32 teeth. So it feels like it plays with a lot of the same themes of this as far as like just a minor difference in him versus other people. And it ends with the government wanting to teleport him to Mars because they feel that maybe that 33 third teeth would help him communicate with Martians. <laughs> and it's just like that was 1965 and just watching this film really makes me want to see more of Daniela's uh, filmography because it just seems like he had some amazing ideas. Well, I like the way I like the way that that's what came before because it seems like he was sort of putting his toe in the water of political dissent and going, is it okay if I'm critical of a system in this way in this Sixties, uh, we'll just give him a thirty-third tooth. We're not going to make him black or anything like that. We're just gonna, we're just gonna give him a thirty-third tooth. And as long as everybody's okay with that, then maybe later we'll try putting a bell in their nose. But we'll probably have to wait until the eighties until we can try something like that. It seems like the idea of the space between cultures. And the idea of of this inherent inequity between the groups is quite interesting. It also feels like they're really playing with this idea, too, because Daniela was a Georgian, and we've got the two main characters. One is a Georgian and one is a Russian. And I think that that is also being hinted at as far as the differences between the cultures here on Earth. I mean, we're talking more than just, you know, bourgeoisie and the proletariat. We're also talking about, like, how are other countries that aren't Russia being treated in the Soviet Union? So I think that's a very pointed thing as well. How different are we actually? We've got different names, but actually everything about us is the same. Like, you know, the idea that Georgian culture and Russian culture were very similar, say, for, you know, a lo- aside from geopolitical boundaries, a couple of also very clear cultural differences. But inherently, someone from Georgia might be closer to someone from Russia than someone from one end of Russia and the other end of Russia. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's an outstanding depiction of the variance or the lack of variance and the implied variance between individuals. I I adore this weird little USB Internet of Things button they have that they can point at people to see whether they're higher or lower culture. And the just absolute uh, randomness of it and the idea it's consistent when it points at you, it always does the same color at you. But the idea of what does that even mean, and who decided which one was better, which one was worse, and does it actually mean anything? And it goes back to the star belly snitches, of course, and the idea that, well, just because we're different, does that mean 
we're different or <laughs> you know is how how much of a difference is it is it just the color of the thing or is it a bigger higher moral yeah, they cultural never, they never explain anything beyond that little light i think that's it i think that's all it is yeah and that the like you said earlier you can switch when you go to that little planet which is just seems like a rock in the sky it's like oh yeah no this is a potsack planet so the the chatelains have to bow to us they have to coo to us instead exactly exactly and they take a moment and go oh hey hey don't forget you've got to do that on this planet and that above all things they have to honor this this nonsensical sequence of bowing and cooing because that is a greater sin than theft. If you ignore your stature, yeah, make sure you're wearing your bell and do your bows. Otherwise, it's lifetime in a bathtub full of nails. Exactly, stealing a lot of stuff, totes fine. Otherwise, bathtub full of nails. Talking about the Georgian versus Russian thing, I think that that is really coming through at the end too. When you have both of our characters transported back to Earth, and they don't seem to have any memory necessarily of Pluke until they both see this flashing yellow light, which is like a police light, and they both coo to it right there, and then they remember each other and who they are. So it's like this whole journey has allowed these two people who might not normally ever converse or talk to each other to finally actually connect here back on Earth. See, I really loved the PTSD sort of element of it, where where it was sort of two soldiers who hadn't really engaged with each other hearing a, a car backfire and then catching each other's eyes and realizing oh my god it was you all along the film starts out with our younger traveler asking the older traveler to help a homeless person and he instantly says yes and the and and the notion that that you know you have but but to reach out to connect um, but then coming around and, and realizing that they wouldn't have remembered the shared experience. They would have buried it so deeply had it not been for this trigger that set them both off at the same time. And then again, in true form for this film, it ends. Just finishes. Well, they're not very big on endings in Soviet cinema. <laughs> they often just stop. Sometimes, sometimes I guess that's better. Are you doing an episode on the ear? I've, I, did I remember to see that on your list? We did an episode did. on the year, yeah. I, I missed it. Yeah, I watched that for the first time recently as well. There's a a, a nice Blu-ray of it's just come out in the UK. And it, that also just kind of stops. <laughs> yeah, you might want to check who did the audio commentary on that. Oh, really? <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's a lovely disc. I'll uh, Yeah, I'll definitely give that a listen. Yeah, we did. Uh, it was kind of nice. We did episode slash commentary for that. So our episode was the commentary and oh, vice versa. Fantastic. Oh, awesome. Oh, well, it'll be on that Blu-ray then, I imagine. <laughs> yep, there you yeah, go. Yeah, I thought I had seen it on the list when you first uh, first talked to us about this this season. You know, without making it all, all about money, there's a certain economy to just finishing when you're done, isn't there? There's a certain... Don't not stay you're welcome. ...sort of stoicism to, and they're back on Earth and they recognise each other and that's all we need to tell you about it. Like, we don't need to know if he gets his bread for his wife, we don't need to know if the leak at the factory is fixed, we don't need to know if the famous violinist ever gets his violin, we just need to know that they have this experience and it was real and they'll always remember it. And no one else will believe them. And they may not remember it. Dan, I think you mentioned Solaris earlier. And yeah, Solaris has a little bit bigger of a budget. At least they had like a big set and everything. But really, that movie is pretty freaking cheap, too, when the first half of it is 
all on Earth, and just you need a pretty location. You've got that six-minute car ride, and then boom, you're out in space. There is none of this. All right, let's get him in the capsule and shoot him up here and have him weightless and all this. There's the one weightless sequence, which is gorgeous, but that looks like it shot, you know, the set basically looks like somebody's den. So it's that that weird mix of practical locations and science fiction all in one. It, it also reminds me of a film that would come a couple of years later, which was on the silver globe where yes. again, it's like there's parts of that that are just shot in a city. You know, when there's a bunch of other stuff that's all shot on the beach. So you're just using these locations here on earth, but shooting them in a, such a way that it looks like they're not on earth. I mean, Anna Karina passed away today, and of course, that's got me thinking about Alphaville and just that use of locations as science fiction, where it is just Paris of 19-whatever, and we're going to make it look like a science fiction film. Yeah, well, there's the... I think I might have mentioned it on the the last episode we recorded with you, but I had either just watched or was about to watch a Swedish sci-fi, I think it's Swedish, um, called Aniara which is a beautiful, beautiful sci-fi film, but is all locations. There's no builds. And they've just found these amazing spaces to be the inside of this enormous spaceship. Whereas Jen produced a really nice, quite oh, small native, sci-fi yeah. film called Native a few years back. And they built, uh, well, uh, John Revel, John, uh, Jen's designer, well, we, we built, built a stage inside of the ship. But when you went to Earth, you found, where was it? This was the desert. <laughs> I say the desert. This is the beach up by Liverpool. And it's absolutely, the tide goes out like you would not believe. And then literally, so we got there at about five in the morning, if not earlier. We may have even gotten there at four. And we were filming the these scenes, and so all of the sand is wet because the tide's gone bright out. The sun is rising; it's reflecting off of the tidal uh, tidal sand. sand. Yeah, gorgeous. And there's no city on the horizon. And as far as you can see, there's a little bit of of uh, urban buildings covered in fog, and it's spectacular. But the water comes in at over a foot every ten seconds. And so, um, so people, it's quite dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. And we only, we also only had about an hour of filming. So the, there is this kind of use of environment that you can make, but equally it's, it's also, you know, it's always, there's a reason people don't build houses there. Yeah. But, yeah, but then you also did some city stuff. <laughs> we used a lot of brutalist architecture, which in post World War II UK was a hugely popular style. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to find all these buildings that were just sort of innately geometrical and, and sort of a, a geophysics, uh, sorry, geo, what is, geo, no, the geophysics, geodesic. thank you. There we go. Easy for you to say. You, say, um, ge- you just say geophysics in a weird way. Ge- geodesic spheres. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was fantastic. But then see, I was going to talk about something like the prisoner, where oh, again, yeah. um, this is a place that exists. Dan will remember the name of this of the village. No, Port, no. Is it Port Marion? Port Marion. Yeah. Port Marion in Wales. Um, that's a real place that exists, and somehow they were able to shoot the entire TV series there as though it was this science fiction compound. I love that kind of thing where they use real life locations as otherworldly, otherworldly truths. Um, lots of places for Mars are shot in Morocco because the red sand. Mm. That's always a fun one. Yeah, they used a lot of the brutalist architecture in Mexico City for Total Recall. And then when we talked about uh, Gattaca, just so much of that film. I mean, 
it's all the future and there's a couple shots of rockets, but that's about it. And it's just the locations that they chose for so much of the film made it look like it was otherworldly. I, one of my favorite things living in London is genuinely so much of London looks like it could be a science fiction film set. And it's, it, it's, it's all just a pressure hose away from being, from being a dystopian <laughs> sci-fi. Um, and it's it really is between the subway stations and and everything else. There's such tremendous architecture, um, and it's 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 a great thing when films use that because it it's just taking the world around us and making us look at it in a slightly different way, isn't it? Well, yeah, we just finished a picture earlier this year um, called Possessor, which is going to be at Sundance in January. Brandon Cronenberg, um, yeah, Brandon Cronenberg's new picture, and that's a sort of high concept sci-fi set in a if not an alt now, then very near future. And the locations people did some great work and the set deck people did some amazing work. Um, both We did do a few builds, but there was a lot of location shoot as well in and around Toronto, and they found these really fantastic, slightly weird places to film. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back right after these messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome everyone to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel. Hi everyone, welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday.
оценитель испугнул. Здрасте, Владимир Чижов! Толик я, сын Елены Ивановны, сестры вашей двоюродной. Можно я у вас поживу пока? Нельзя. Человек, скажите, какой номер мне нажимать, чтобы домой переместиться? 03 набери, там помогут. 03 нельзя, 03 это плюк. Грамицапа – это то, без чего наш пепелац может только так летать. А с Грамицапой любая планета 5 минут. Он нас до земли и обратно, а я ему 10 коробок КЦ. И мне 3000. И кто? Кто? Я музыкант. Нет, и подсах. Пока, подсах. У них от шампуня глюки. Они весь мой шампунь выпили. Небо. Небо не видело такого бездарного пацака. Желтый штаны два раза гуд. Папа, не нервничай. Ку, папа. Который на шоу-бизнес пролез? Не знаю. А вы сами как пролезли? Полкицы дал. Думаете, что это тринклюкатор? Эй! Дядя Толик, меня не убивай! Мы с тобой подсаки, братья! Мама, мама, что мы будем делать? Ку! Это мы очень любить! Это нас совсем не тошнить! All right, we are back, and we were talking about Kinzadza. So a few years after Kinzadza came out, well, quite a few years after Kinzadza came out, the director actually did a remake of his own film, which we've seen that before. We 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 all know about things like funny games, or and this is interesting because he made it into an animated film. And I have to say, I love the animation style for this. It is just it looks really gorgeous, and they changed it up. A few ways, but then there are other places where they kept Kinzadza almost exactly the same. Yeah, they've so they've got rid of the the slightly complicated backstory as to why they're carrying a violin, and they've just made the older giant guy a, a professional musician, haven't they? Um, and I, they've made them rather than and they're meeting, related meeting rather than, um, yeah. randomly in the street. They are actually they are actually uncle and, and nephew, which is funny because in the main in the in the original film terms like uncle and brother and father and son are used as terms of respect and endearment within Honorific. a sort of yeah. communist society. Yes, my communist brother, this kind of thing. Yes, uncle. Yes, uncle. Um, whereas suddenly they're just like, eh, let's just make him his uncle. Why not? Why not they'll be related? <laughs> Even though you don't necessarily... I didn't, at least until the, the reveal, I didn't think that he was actually related to this guy. No, I don't think they are. Are they related? You mean in the original one? No, no, no in, in, the, the in the remake. In the remake, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at one point, they finally do confirm that he actually is related to his uncle. But for the rest of it, I was just like, oh, no, he's trying to scam this guy by calling him uncle and saying that, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, I'm so-and-so's son. But then at one point, they finally do figure out that he actually is related to his uncle. 
Well, and he sort of painted because in the in the live action film, he's much more of an artist scholar, and in the remake, student, he's got he? a, a athletic jersey on, which is quite American and sporty. Well, they've and, introduced cell phones; it's definitely updated. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. he's not really the same kind of character, is he? And I love that they use the Mama song as the guy's <laughs> ringtone. That is fantastic. <laughs> this terrible song. It's such a song. nice way. Oh, the terrible song in order to then have that come back as the, uh, this is the song that we're going to busk to. It was, I really enjoyed that. It must be a hit someplace on earth. Well, that's the thing. It must be an old. Was it a folk song or something? I before, feel like it's a it Georgian folk movie? song. Cause in the, in the live action feature, the little guy says that his mom was from Georgia, doesn't he? So I slightly wonder if it's a lullaby that she sang to him as a baby and he happens to know it. Um, and it's just because obviously, like, they don't care about being tone deaf or getting the lyrics on, uh, wrong in any of this. Yeah. So they're just shouting the words and rough tune of things. Um, but yeah, I always sort of wondered if that was a tie back to maybe his mom was Georgian and, and that came from before. But, um, but yeah, and I love, uh, cause in the, in the live action one as well, and I can't remember what it is now, they do actually sing a song that they would have had to pay the modern rights to. If they did. But yeah, yeah, but, I, I was thinking about that. I couldn't remember what the, um, what it was. They sing a was different Was it Some song Enchanted one. Evening? It might be. Possibly. I don't, I don't remember. I feel like it was more modern than that. I feel like when they're doing the violin and, uh, they're in the cage and they get told they have to kneel. Is it possible to play a song so badly that you don't have, you to, don't pay have to pay copyright on it? <laughs> How could you possibly think it was the same thing? It's obviously completely different. That's terrible for one thing. It's rare that someone gets to remake their own work or would choose to remake their own work even. It's a fun little romp. It reminds me a little bit of like uh, Three Kings of Tokyo or um, the 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 Women of Belleville, that sort of cheerful animation style. I think I mean Three Kings. You mean Three of Godfathers. Tokyo. Three Godfathers of Tokyo. Thank Just you. Just Three Godfathers, I think. Um, but uh, but yeah, that sort of jolly kind of, and it is aimed for young, younger audience. I think it is it is a little bit more childlike, but it's it's still a really fun piece. I was just looking up that apparently our older character in the original film, uh, when he's in his apartment, they're playing a bit of a film called Kotovsky from 1943, and that has the line, Mama, Mama, what shall we do? <laughs> there you uh, go. Okay, there you go. I love it. There you go. Nicely done, sir. Nicely done. I don't know where that one comes from, and yeah, you could be right. It could be a Georgian folk song, lullaby, but yeah, so there is a connection there. Brilliant, brilliant. I was reminded a lot of the guy who used to do animated segments on MTV quite a bit, and then he actually ended up being able to do feature films, where he does almost like a three-cell animation, where it's like the same image, just three different ways, so it's kind of this wavering thing to it. But the character design in Kinzadza, or Cool Kinzadza, the remake, reminds me of that type of character design especially the uncle with the hair going up and out kind of thing mike is struggling to remember the name bill plimpton i like that we're playing up the classism even more in this that he is wearing a tuxedo through the whole thing and he's very upper class coming from earth and then he's thrown into the lower class and it doesn't matter that he is a professional cellist and that he is seen as this very you know important person on earth he is just a potsock like everybody else yeah i mean it's obviously the the They've really like hammered into the class divide, uh, for that really, um, really underlined it. 
and I'm not sure if I like that they style the aliens to look much more like aliens. I kind of like the idea of the aliens looking exactly like us. I like the way they look, but I'm with you. I prefer them to be humanoid. Well, it's like we were saying earlier about the bath. It, it's obvious that he has changed some things that he maybe felt he couldn't do the first time, like having, you know, they, they couldn't put those guys in full prosthetics and have them be, you know, have them be puppets or CGI or whatever. They've kept the bathtub the same and then they've changed the aliens. And they also definitely changed the guy from Pluke, or maybe he's not from Pluke, but the guy who transports them. Uh, I love that whole thing where he's got the flowers going around his head. He's, he's and a he totally just... different dynamic, well, isn't but, he? So he oh, he's, yeah. He's an interesting design because they've got him. He is still alien, but he looks humanoid enough that their suspicions aren't aroused at the beginning. And they really, they chop out quite a bit. I mean, especially at the end, the whole idea of them going to that very uh, fertile, uh, almost Edenic planet is just gone. Well, this is, I had sort of wondered with the flower halo on his head, if they were going to do something with the time travel about that. But yeah, as you say, they just didn't really, it, it seems like he he didn't want to overcomplicate things by introducing another society. Well, it's like half an hour shorter as well. Like it's it's... It really goes by the clip. So it's got it's got to chop something out. I mean, my uh, granddaughter was over yesterday, and I was really hoping to experiment on her and have her watch this film and see if it is a kid's film or not. How did she respond to it? Unfortunately, her mom took her back beforehand. <laughs> Dad. Yeah. So I, just, I mean, she came over, she took her out of the Skinner box, and then it was all a whole different thing. You were ringing the bell at everything. Do you want food? You have to hit this bell. Said, hit the button. Hit not that button. That's the shocky button. <laughs> um, Grandpa told you about that. No. Um, but uh, no, it's it's funny because it it's it does seem like a bizarre, possibly highfalutin kind of a film, but equally it's playful enough that you can see to where it would appeal to children as well. Yeah, especially once it's been cartoonified. Yeah, when you see like the little girl alien who gives uh, the piece of wood to one of the guys. I'm just like, okay, this seems, they're almost like Who's from Whoville. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they are, I mean, obviously it is a cartoon, but they are much more cartoony. It it's also means that it's slightly, it's interesting that they've gone so much sort of more heavy-handed on the, the class divide allegory stuff, given that it is more, in every other respect, it's more overtly aimed at children. And so it feels like, you know, Pixar putting in the odd slightly smutty joke for the grown-ups who have to go and watch these films with their kids. So they've put in they've put in all this this class commentary for the for the parents. I'm really hoping that when they put this movie out that they include the little documentary that they did on Soviet TV about Daniela. Um that was really nice. I don't know if you guys had a chance to take a look at that, but it's called something like The Man from Planet Kinzadza. Uh, we have not, I'm afraid. Was his was his place amongst Russian directors relatively revered, or was he a working guy, or was it you know how do do we know how this placed at the time? Well, I I think that at the time it was looked at as being okay. Um, he they make very brief mention of Tarkovsky in the film, and I want to say that he actually had a little bit of input on. Um, uh, sorry, in the documentary, and I want to say he had a little bit of uh, input when it came to Kinzadza, but it felt like this guy was always kind of skirting the edges. Like, the first film that he put out, um, 
actually had a, a hit song in it, and people were really excited about this song. It was what was that called? Walking the Streets of Moscow. Not so much this movie. <laughs> No, no, not really. Though the score for this movie is going for buku bucks on uh, Amazon. It's crazy. It's oh, really, really good. It's, it's great. It's, it's a fantastic. It's really engaging. It's such a funny thing to have them doing. Very rarely do you have people doing something like shit music in a film and then also have good music playing in the film as well. Like it's it's spectacular. The uh, yeah, the contrast is is greater because of it. So he clearly had a very musical background then. Well, and he also chose a really good musician to do the score, and apparently the musician could not handle the parts when they were just abusing that violin. He would have to leave the studio and have someone else do that part because he just couldn't handle it. Um, but yeah, they actually they interviewed a, a bunch of people for this documentary, and they it's an interesting way that they put the thing together because they'll talk about uh, Daniela historically, and then they'll jump to Kinsadza. It seems like this was really the movie that people remember him for. And then they'd go back to the historical and then switch to Kinsadza, and they just it's like they piecemeal it through the whole thing. And I think it was also made while he was making the Kukinsadza, the animated version, and it felt almost like a promo piece for that. But it was, uh, I'd say, at least an hour long and really well put together. The only thing that confused me was when they would make those jumps from past to Kinzadza, and I was just like, wait, what, which movie are we talking about now? But after a bit, I finally realized, like, okay, there's a rhythm to this thing, so okay, now they're going to talk about it. Um, because they would talk about, like, oh yeah, the controversy with the Soviet premier, the Georgian, or whoever it was, their initials sounding like coup. So I was like, oh, okay, I, now I get it. Now I figure out what, you, what you're doing here. I mean, there was a long gap. There was like, what was it, like 13 years between the remake and the film he'd done previous to it. So, in, and that was his last film before he died. So, I can see that it sounds like what you were saying about the documentary maybe being part of a, uh, hey guys, this guy is back. He's doing this, like a promo for the, for the new version. The interviews with the guy who did the production design, I thought were fantastic. And he even has like the, I don't want to say Fabergé egg. The the one the police uh, ship reminds me a lot of an egg, and he was holding up those things and just yeah, just saying like, okay, here's the miniature of this, and just he's he seemed like a really fascinating guy. And they were talking with some of the actors and actresses, and it was just they really at this point in time, a lot of people from the original were still alive, so they were able to get some great interviews. The the Russian miniatures have long been a, a home of beautiful craftsmanship as well. Yeah, I love it. Um, I was particularly tickled when they put the wheels on the, the main spaceship, transplanted its feet for wheels. That was great, and pushing it through the desert. Yeah, well, because you see it moving up behind a dune, so you don't realise they're pushing it to start with, and then as the camera cranes up, you see that they're just pushing it along. <laughs> Yeah, this is now one where I will probably go back to Kinzadza quite often just because I had so much fun watching it. And I think you can watch it in a lot of different ways and just probably pick out a lot more things each time. I, I rewatched it just last night because um, I watched it for the first time probably about a week ago. And I was already seeing things that I hadn't picked up the first time. It's a constant dose of information. It's a constant exposure to a new world, and every bit of it is different from ours. That said, it is really nice, frugal world building. And this one is, right now, fairly easy to get. You know, I mentioned that there's a DVD of it, there's a Blu-ray, there's a Blu-ray coming out, but Mozfilm has put this out 
all over the place. You can find the full version or the version split in two parts, both of them with English uh, subtitles out on YouTube, no problem. And they're totally legal versions. So they should be out there for at least another week until, you know, some uh, somebody makes a mention and uh, there, there's a, a copyright strike against them. Buy the Blu-ray. I'm, g- I'm going to. All right. We're going to take another break and play preview for next week's show.
That's right. We'll be back next week with our first episode of 2020, where we're going to be looking at a lot of films from the year 1969. This time we'll be talking about Eros Plus Massacre. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Jen and Dan. So, Jen, what is happening in your world? So, I think I've mentioned it last time I was here. We're still working on our documentary, uh, Monster in a House, which is uh, about tarantulas and the people who love them, um, uh, surrounding the UK's and, in fact, the world's biggest tarantula beauty contest. Uh, so, working on that. And then, um, yeah, just a couple other things uh, that hopefully I can share with everybody a bit soon. And how about you, Dan? The Canadian film I mentioned earlier in the episode um, is going through its final mix in Soho, London at the moment, ahead of its Sundance preview. So I'm very excited about that. I'm doing some uh, stuff for a couple of uh, TV shows over in the UK at the moment. Um yeah, not really much I can talk about specifically, but <laughs> it's that time of year. But Possessor's going to come out soon, and it's going to be amazing. So that. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps Projection Booth take over this world and Pluke. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.